Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. From South Central Los Angeles, I'm Adam Huss. Thanks for listening. This episode highlights one of the new winemaking teams that are part of the Southern California wine renaissance. Herman York is the brand new winery that is a partnership of three young gentlemen, Dustin Herman, Garrett York, and Taylor York. They all originate and make wine from a part of California that is often both overlooked and unfairly maligned as a wine growing region. That is Southern, specifically inland California, the high desert. They are using their intelligence, passion, and loyalty to their corner of the world to prove that delicate, interesting, and delicious wines can be made in the desert. Hearing them talk about how they are doing this is a colorful journey through this climate and its extremes. The grapes that thrive there and the creativity that they are using to craft wines that actually have not been made before. If you're having a case of holiday hangover or winter blues, this dose of Southern California sunshine brought to you by Herman York may be just the cure that you need. Enjoy. So um, I want to welcome you guys. Thanks so much for doing this. This is the Herman York team. And can because there's three of you, would you mind introducing yourselves, please? Hey, Adam. Thanks for having us. I'm uh, Dustin of Herman York. Dustin Herman. I'm Garrett York of Herman York. And I'm Taylor York of Herman York. So how are you guys related? Is it is it cousins? So Taylor and I are brothers and Dusty is uh he's an honorary York, but we couldn't <laughs> just be York winery because we'd probably get sued by the thousand York adjacent wineries out there. So we're Herman York. Nice. Uh, so it was sort of strategic yeah. using both names. That is good. And oh. didn't have to actually file for a uh, fictitious business name. Uh, true. Well, so where are you guys right now? I mean, it, big macro. You don't have to be micro. We are in, I guess, what you could call our very first winery facility, Garrett's Garage in Redlands, California. So for people who may not know where Redlands is, and I'm not even... 100%. Where are you? Where is Redlands? So I always get angry when people compare where they live in California to where they are to uh, Los Angeles. But here we go. <laughs> we are in between Los Angeles and Palm Springs. Like halfway? About. Let's go with okay. halfway. Yeah. yeah. If you're driving to Palm Springs from LA and you see a bunch of trees, then you're in Redlands. Anywhere else in the space between, you're likely not looking at a lot of trees. But uh, but here. Yeah I, yeah, I haven't made that drive enough, but I can't even think of any trees until you get up. All right, so are there mountains? Hills. Hills. You're, you, so you're in the foothills? Yeah, we're close to the foothills. For the okay. geographically inclined, we're at the far east end of the San Bernardino Valley. So We are yeah. zone 9B. At the base of the San Bernardino Mountains. <laughs> yeah. We have San Gregonio, San Bernardino Pink, uh, the San Gabriel Mountain Range. And from the right angle, you can see San Jacinto, too. I love that. Well, in honor of you guys, I came about as far as I ever come and was in Ontario and Chino today and get like checking out actually a vineyard and, and buying chickens, believe it or not. Um, 
and I bought some wine from out there because I was like, well, this is, you know, this is in honor of you guys. It's not your wine, but that's not available yet. So I, I got as close as I could. <laughs> it's from old AVA, Rancho Cucamonga. Yeah, well, yeah. Ontario did you go to? Galliano. Nice. Uh, OG. Yeah. That is old and, stuff. Pre-prohibition, I walked through the vines that are, you know, could be my great-great-grandparents, basically, um, in terms of, I guess, how long they've been around. Ah, and really short. They're really short. I mean, because they don't do anything as as far as I understand. They just, that's it. They're, they were stuck in sand, you know, 80 years ago or something like that. And that's, that's all that happened to them. <laughs> they're still there. The yeah. ones that survived. It's yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, I imagine their tap roots go like a hundred feet into the ground. Like oh, they must be. the core of the earth. Oh, must be. Yeah. But they, I mean, anyway, enough about them you guys are born and bred uh in in that neck of the woods right a bit yeah i'm uh taylor and i are from the mojave desert so we grew up in victorville which you know uh i also dislike comparing uh cities in california to los angeles but if you're driving from los angeles to las vegas right in the middle is where taylor and i are from right yeah, I, just, I was born and raised one town over, so I haven't I haven't gotten too far. <laughs> so it must be paradisical there if you guys, you know, haven't left, right? I mean, it's got everything you need, no reason to leave. Yeah, we've all left for a year or two or three and found our way back by choice for the most part. Okay. So what got you into wine? I mean, is it... I don't know. Like, what's the story there? I think in our journey of having adult beverages, we found ourselves in wine and found ourselves talking more and more about it. And we kind of landed on that more than anything else. Taylor's a beer guy. So that's maybe this is just a Garrett and I. <laughs> but he doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. He doesn't make beer anymore. Yeah. yeah we just, that's not true. We kept talking about it more and more and more. And then it was always the dream, like, Hey, let's have a wine bar. Let's start a winery. And then we started reading more about everything. And then we realized that we could probably make something happen. And we became passionate with making wine in the garage. And then that just became real. Yeah. And I, I'm obnoxiously, I mean, you and I talk quite a bit, but, um, I'm obnoxiously intellectual about wine, so it, my introduction to it has been through books. So, you know, uh, when my wife and I got married, we kind of combined our books on the on the shelf in our apartment, and she's she was born in Napa, and she had tons of wine books, like your typical like tasting guides of uh, Saint Helena or Calistoga, the Sonoma Coast. Um, but then she also had like Secrets of the Sommelier, the um, Jordan Mackey and Raj Parr book that like blew my mind. I had no idea that people cared as much about a fermented beverage as, as those guys did. And then I realized that a lot of other people care that much about wine. Um, and that just led to more books and then to better and better wine. Well, And you and I have that in common too. I mean, it was reading that you know, you start reading about it and the more you learn about it, the more you want to drink it. Yeah. Um, but why, why were you reading? 
about it? I mean, like what inspired that? Was it just your natural curiosity and the books were laying around? And I, I kind of ran through all the books on the bookshelf. <laughs> there you go. And I was like, I came to that section of the library and I was like, oh, well, this has got to be something. And, you know, when we got married, um, if you'll humor a short story, um, my wife has a 59 Studebaker. She was born in Napa and it was my plan to try and surprise her. And I thought the only way that I could surprise her with a proposal is if I had everyone else with us drive that moment and I had no kind of control over it. So I said to Taylor, I said, hey, if I just kind of told you the plan, would you kind of drive our entire proposal? And he's like, yeah, of course. So we got in my wife's 59 Studebaker and Taylor was like, hey, why don't we drive up Valley to Calistoga and just take some pictures with your car? So we go up the valley and, um, you know, he's like, hey, why don't we stop off in this vineyard? A little aside, these, these, uh, so Kendall and Garrett, the way that their, their fashion in those days was um, very vintage. And so we're sitting in the back of this 59 Studebaker driving up valley on this windy road and looking ahead at Garrett and Kendall sitting there. And it was like a picture out of from like 1959. Yeah. Um, so Taylor's got his camera and he, you know, we pull off into somebody's vineyard. I, I don't even know who's who it belonged to, but I was getting nervous that someone was going to come out with a shotgun or a dog or something. But they didn't. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give you a signal. And then when I do, I'll take a picture right at the moment. You know, so she thankfully said, okay. Um, and we've been married six years now. But like, it's hard to not have those experiences nice. in a place like, you know, Calistoga which is picturesque and not think like, oh, there's something to this kind of agriculture. There's something to how much money and time and passion goes into a beverage like this. It isn't just some commodity sitting on the shelf next to Hostess Donuts. Yeah. You know, that's what I, I, I like that little analogy that in Dusty's biography on your website about um, working on cars that are solely meant for pleasure driving and, mm-hmm. and how that translates to wine. You Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah, I mean, wine for us, it became, it, it definitely is pleasure. When we talk about it, it's pleasure. And when we work with it and when we go pick and, and harvest, it, it truly is a pleasure thing. And I think it's always been my goal. That's why I've been working on cars because I always thought I should get a real job. And then I realized I really enjoyed working on cars. So it's always my goal to, to make work and pleasure kind of the same thing. So with wine, we just kept talking about it and it seemed like we could bridge that gap and make something pleasurable, maybe make three salaries. So that's how, I mean, it wasn't a, we didn't make that jump right away. It was, I mean, wine is so interesting. You, you can't learn enough about it you could study, you know, the soil for the rest of your life or the leaves or French varietals or Bordeaux varietals in that sense. So it just became such a big thing to think about and a pleasure thing. So it was just always fun for us. Nice. How do you approach that limitlessness of the knowledge? I, I mean, how do you stress out? You... <laughs> do you t- is there any like attempt to hone in and just sort of have you know like what's the corner that you're gonna try to we tried that with um with with bottles but in the early like five years ago we we're like hey let's drink Beaujolais or something or let's drink bordeaux we thought we could drink bordeaux in a month 
or a year <laughs> even, we're like, let's drink only Bordeaux this month. And you can't even, that's, it's, it's very laughable at this point. We, we did get through a bit of, of uh, Beaujolais. We, that, yeah, that, if you're going to get through one, that one's a, a good one. And I still remember yeah. that. Like, that was, those were, that was a great summer. And then I think we tried to go to Bordeaux next and it, 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 it didn't work. Oh, God. Slightly <laughs> larger. I think that's the first time I felt stressed out about wine. I was like, oh, it's much larger than... <laughs> it's like, and next we'll do Italy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All the um, 1,500 or whatever varietals. Or... Did you go to any of these places that you were tasting through, like Beaujolais? So back to your first question about how we met, uh, Garrett and I actually, we both went to um, school in Italy and we were roommates and that's where, that's how we became friends. So we were in Italy. We didn't drink good wine in Italy. This was maybe what, 12, 11, 12 years ago. Yeah, it was a long time. Poor college kids. When we were college kids yeah. and we did not drink good wine. We drank a lot of wine, but it wasn't good wine. Yeah. I, yeah. We went back to it. And we have since gone back to the exact school and, uh, it was outside of Florence where we lived and we went back with our wives and hung out a few years ago and we, we were able to do some uh, wine stuff then and realized we had missed out on a lot, but it was a great year. I wouldn't, I guess, change a thing. Yeah. And you know, you can't really be too uh, ambitious when you're like 19 years old and you can't even drink in your own home country. Like I didn't, <laughs> didn't even know that wine was like a, a, a thing. But our, our favorite wine experience there when we were at school and then 10 years later when we went with our wives is there's a pizza place called Pizzeria Spera um, that was between where we lived in Careggio and like in the center of town. And we called it Juicy Juice because it was, uh, they called it Vino uh, alla Spina. It was literally wine on tap. And it was like the most uh, tanninless juicy juice pizza wine pizza wine you've ever had and drinking it again was such a visceral experience it was like a return it was like we were shot 10 years into the past and it was beautiful nice well so what are you guys what are all the things that you're sort of dabbling with so you, i mean this is all very new for you guys still uh, and for example you you've this was your first harvest i believe um, official, I mean, and with your commercial license, uh, yeah, yeah, and so everything's still in barrel or tank. Um, but you have some other thing. You you've planted some grapes as well. What, I mean, where did, tell tell me a little bit about what you got going on in terms of that the the harvest, the wines that you're doing, plans, you know, projects, everything that's going on. One did you say you were just bottling? By the way, did you say you were bottling a sparkling wine? Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're doing that right now. This is <laughs> unofficial. It's a home okay. project. But yeah, we had like we made an well, we made an Alicante Boucher commercially this year, and came home with a bunch of must basically from Alicante Boucher, and it is a you know notoriously juicy grape. Oh. We pressed it very, very lightly because we made a rosé out of it and we wanted oh. to impart very little skin color at all because right. the flesh had plenty and we wanted it to be a very light color. Um, so we came home with a bunch of very wet must and we're like, what, the, what? I wonder how much we can get out of this. So we filled a 30-gallon 
uh, French oak or uh, American oak barrel that we had from previous years. Yeah, we did a second press with a little basket press we have in the yeah. garage. And this wasn't even like piquette style. You didn't even water it down. No, not we did do a piquette. We also made garage. a piquette out of Moscow. <laughs> Um, what haven't you done? <laughs> but the one we just bottled, we literally pressed a nearly done ferment. It was probably like at four bricks when we um, finally decided to move it to barrel because we like to finish ferments in barrel. Um, but we moved it to a keg and sealed the keg and let it carbonate itself. And that's what we bottled just now on a couple of swing tops just to, you know, have something to drink on nights like this. And, nice. you know, it's it's weird. Um, it's certainly not spoiled or too odd, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Nice. Well, oh yeah. Taylor, Taylor was giving you the, the download. So one of the yeah, things, yeah. I mean, at least that I've been trying to work on, um, is we, we had, we had a very frank discussion on the way back from our winery, uh, one night about where the simple problem of where we get grapes. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we're really, we're really trying to focus on being a Southern California winery. And in order for us to do that, we have to get, we have to have good grapes in Southern California and our business model, you know, at least for the next, for the short future is not necessarily to establish our own vineyards, but to get grapes from growers who, you know, have a passion for growing grapes and are around here and are local. Um, And so, you know, we've been talking with the different wine alliances and, and trying to find folks who want to grow grapes around here. Um, nice. Yeah. Now I know that you guys care about the farming. Are, are you having any luck finding people who are, are willing to, to do, you know, organic biodynamic style, uh, regenerative. People, yeah. Most of the people that we talk to, um, cause we're very close to Ukaipa and this year they submitted all their paperwork for the type of Valley AVA, which mm. when approved will be the newest AVA in California. And also, um, at, at least for a short period of time uh, in the U S and the AVA application and kind of bureaucratic steps are coming before the proliferation of vineyards. Uh, whereas, mm. you know, as far as uh, I know, it usually happens the other way around. Like people in an area go, this soil, this you know, climate is great for grapes. Let's plant them. Enough people do that. And then they go, hey, there's something special about this place. Let's you know, sign the paperwork and make it official. But um, this way kind of happened the other way around. There was a couple of really passionate winemakers in the area who said, to bring attention and to protect this land for viticulture, Let's file all the paperwork and then convince people to plant more grapes. So we've been having a lot of conversations with uh, people who own property and are interested in wine and viticulture, but don't necessarily have the expertise. So they're very, very open to all sorts of different farming practices and are like readily admit that they don't know what the right answer is or aren't requiring these kind of ham-fisted conventional farming, uh, you know, techniques and they don't demand a certain tonnage per acre. They just really kind of want to do something special with, you know, a three to five acre parcel of land that they own that's adjacent to their, their home. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we've got some friends in the area that, you know, have LLCs or 
who have you know a crew of guys that does landscaping but also does uh, agricultural projects and they invite us along to talk about varietals talk about what we would do as a winery to purchase their fruit or how we could work with them as uh you know um what is it called when you give people advice consultant consultants yeah it's always the easy words <laughs> uh, you know and so we've been having a lot of conversations with people and they'll say so what what do we have to do to like interest you in our grapes as a long-term customer and mm. so we always come prepared by saying well you know we love zinfandel and we think that zinfandel is california's grape adopted grape of course but right. we're trying to get as many people as possible in as many places down here as possible to plant it because we think that that is the benchmark um and then we'll say so plant zinfandel and let's talk about farming organically or biodynamically and they go, what's that? But it's never like a conversation ender. Or they don't go, isn't that those people that follow like the cosmic cycles and the, the rotations of the moon? And, and they don't have that kind of background. So they're coming to it fresh and they're excited about it. And they just go, okay, you tell me what to do. And we don't know all the answers, but what's great about it is that they're open to it. So as consultants, we can find our own consultants and be a force for good in the Valley. That's cool. Yeah, that's a great. Idea. We're a few years away from harvesting right. this stuff, so right, right. Yeah, this is the, playing the long game. The special places, but yeah, any so next year we'll be able to find some good fruit. I mean, that is one of the drawbacks I've noticed for Southern California is like if it's not, if it isn't just a vineyard that uh, is like eighty years old that nobody's done anything to, and therefore it's organic or wild or feral <laughs> by virtue of neglect sort of it's it's usually farmed conventionally there's very few people who are you know in the in the desert areas who are embracing uh sort of sustainable agriculture um but it does sound like that's changing especially with people like you guys um you know pushing it yeah i, what, I think what? that um i think that We've worked with, uh, you know, we worked with a couple of people up in like Los Angeles. That's where we got the majority of our fruit this year. But we also worked with people who are farming wild vineyards, like the one you've described. Mm -hmm. uh, and also like small time growers who have like half an acre of fruit. And yeah. I think those people who tend to be the most open to like, let's try something new. Let's try something more sustainable. Uh, and they get really excited about it. Like we introduced one of our growers to, uh, you know, indigenous yeast fermentations. Like that was such a novel idea to him, but he was really excited about it. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, you guys planted a, a little hillside something, didn't you? A few, yeah, we few have vines. a hillside thing and the gophers are, are kicking our ass this year. We're really seeing that <laughs> actually really hard. <laughs> so um, I think we're, we will expand that. I want to get a control of, of gophers and figure out that management. And then we'll, try to plant hopefully a proper acre up there right now it's a, a hundred vines and oh. we're just we'll, we're learning there and it's some so which we're also excited about that varietal down here in southern california yeah so we would yeah. like to plant a proper acre of some so um it, it would be a, a rough hillside but i think it'd be a lot of fun and i think it can make some really excellent fruit we just have to i have to figure out how to not let the gophers just 
destroy all the beautiful vines. You need to make friends with some California king snakes and coyotes. I you know, think. all of those things are up there in I know. <laughs> owls that live there, but I, nothing. I mean, it's just infested with gophers. Wow. So if anyone has any ideas. Yeah. <laughs> we even have them, every vine we planted, we put in, um, we buried it in a, a like a chicken wire cage. Oh, yeah. That didn't even do anything. And that's a lot of work. Yeah. Oof. Wow. So, I don't know. Planting like 1,200 vines in in mesh, um, like baskets, sounds Oof. like a lot of work. And it, it didn't even work for my 100 vines. So farming is hard. <laughs> Really is. Lesson <laughs> <laughs> well, number one. <laughs> Let's talk about Lake Los Angeles and what what you've made, what what you're doing. Let's talk about yeah, all of that. So there is a grape superstore in Lake Los Angeles uh, <laughs> that's run by someone who's become a friend and. There are 13 different varietals grown over it's probably 15 to 18 acres under vine. Uh, and it is really exciting because this year, uh, you know, the, the patriarch of the family passed early in the year and the son of the family became responsible for kind of maintaining some of the contracts with the winemakers in the area who relied on that fruit and 2019 of course was like a huge glut of grapes that dropped the price of grapes all over the state and grapes from the you know high desert the antelope valley the california high desert ava don't really command a huge price to begin with um and the pandemic shut down a lot of tasting rooms um all over the state and world so they were not getting a lot of orders and this was a case of a vineyard basically becoming a no spray vineyard out of neglect because the family was just overwhelmed with all of those realities all at once. Um, now, of course, this is our first year. We're trying to get our arms around planting, maintaining, purchasing fruit, making wine, going through all the bureaucracy with the TTP and the ABC in the state of California. Um, so it was important to us, but it has become increasingly important to us over the past, you know, year, year and a half that it'd be, you know, farmed in a sustainable way. And it just happened to kind of be that way this year. It hasn't been in the past in full transparency. Um, but, uh, when you go into this vineyard, there's something really special happening with the son of the family who, um, never wanted to be a part of this, uh, but he was kind of brought into it under duress and then kind of caught the bug midway through the season, especially when we talked to him about like what was possible out of that vineyard, what we were interested in. We went in with all these preconceived notions about what we wanted to make. But then at the end of the year, we ended up making things that were very different. Some things that were pretty close to what we had in mind to begin with, but the growing season was despite all the fires and insanity of 2020, ended up being pretty predictable and consistent and actually things started to ripen too consistently and all at the same time, which <laughs> our very small crew of friends and family who were helping us harvest. But we were fortunate enough to be able to harvest everything ourselves with friends and family. Uh, essentially when we wanted to, we called the pick dates on most of our picks 
and ended up making out of that one vineyard, we ended up making what five programs? Five programs. Yeah. Yeah. Five programs and then two that were from two different counties. Yeah. Eight. Wow. Eight barrels. Yeah, eight barrels total. So obviously very small first commercial year, but five from one winery or from one vineyard, sorry. Uh, just because we were so like it was it was a superstore. We were just walking down the aisles and being like, Oh, let's get some of that. Let's get some of that. Yeah, Can it's something that? that could never happen again. Like being able to be that hands on and choose what fruit you want, like up to the minute where it's like, Oh, I'm gonna throw in an extra uh, you know, ton of this. It it was really special. And we know that that's not something that can always happen, but it was a it was a fun year with with that vineyard. So Lake Los yeah. Angeles is a special place. Yeah, and it's I think it's I mean, just paint the picture. It's really in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I think there are more um, like wildlife habitat preserves out there than there are people and houses. Um, but you know, something that I when I started looking into that vineyard a little bit, it, it called to my attention some geography. If you look at uh, an aerial satellite image of that part of the Antelope Valley, there is this big alluvial fan, a sedimentary deposit that fans out over the desert. And that vineyard is not like in the thick of that. It's sort of out at the edge of the fan where that fan dissipates into the desert at one corner. But that fan is really fascinating to me because it's this dark blue gray in the middle of this light sandy desert. And so I looked into it and it's called the Sheeps Canyon alluvial fan. Cause it comes out of Sheeps Canyon wow. off the, off this mountain in the San Gabriel's and I can't remember the name, of it. but if you look at the crest of the mountain, you can see where all of this color comes from. It's like this blue marl limestone that is like very similar to, you know, some other very famous, wine growing regions um and it's i don't know it's fascinating to me i actually like started calling around to local governmental agencies in in around that area and i got a fire department person and i was like this guy he was a fireman i was like hey i'm trying to find out like if anybody knows about the 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 soil where you guys live and I was like, what <laughs> and i was like I was like, no, it's like there's a weird color difference and you can see it from satellites. He's like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So it's like he was like, because the fire department, that's kind of why I called him, was like right on the dividing line. He's like, oh, yeah, you can see it in the soil. You can see like one side, it's this color and one side, it's this color. I was like, oh, man. But he had no clue. <laughs> like, I have no idea. <laughs> but um, that's how obsessed I got about it. But it, there's something kind of special and interesting. I agree about that vineyard, and and um, and and you can, you know, the the grapes as well. I mean, it's strange. It, I wanna I wanna get into more of how you guys feel about the the this what's the word the reputation that the desert wines in Southern California have in uh-huh. terms of grapes and wines. And let's talk, let's just talk about those chips on your shoulders. And <laughs> just no, that's, yeah, that's break out the couch. Something we are up against, but I mean, I think people just use the sun to their advantage and that's how it's been in California for a long time, even in, in Napa and, and I guess Robert Mondavi even it's just, we have sun in California. So let's take advantage of that. Let's ripen these grapes as much as we possibly can. And that's 
been to some a, a downfall to, to California wine. Um, right. And in Southern California, there's more sun than in anywhere else. And it, it definitely is hot, but there are pockets where the, the heat goes away as soon as the sun goes down. So you have those diurnal shifts. And in Southern California, we definitely have that just as much as anywhere else. You get, we're, we're what, 60 to 80 miles from the coast. So some nights you do get coastal breeze. We don't necessarily get summer fogs, but it gets cool. And there's no reason down here you can't get, if you pick right, grow the right stuff. That's another big thing is growing the right stuff down here. You can pick right, farm right. We think wines can be just as delicate in hot climates as, as cooler climates or not even cooler climates, but climates that grow wine in California that are hot and they're known for, for the great wine. It's not hotter down here than some places. So, well, and you're talking about a couple different areas. So I imagine like the Redlands area, you guys kind of get the funneled sea breeze at the back of the Los Angeles basin, right? Um, like versus... 12, down here, it's like a thousand to, I don't know, 15 or 18, maybe a thousand to 2000 in this area. So it's a little bit higher elevation. So that uh-huh. helps with the, the diurnal shifts. Okay. There and up in the Antelope Valley, so that's, I mean, like that vineyard is at like 2,600 feet or Lake Los Angeles is around 2,600 feet. And then it kind of, the closer you get to the San Gabriels, you start rising. Um, what is that? I mean, you, you refer to that, that evening breeze as the mistral, uh, like a, like a mistral. Does it have a name that sort of desert breeze that cruises in? So it depends depends on the time of year. I mean, in the desert, it's just called the wind. I mean, because (laughs) it's constant. It never ends. I mean, Taylor and I would like, we wouldn't even say the word wind out loud when we were kids because we didn't want it to start blowing. Like if there was a moment of stillness and someone said, hey, where'd the wind go? Then it would start. Yeah, but, um, but... And of you know, of course, there is the Santa Ana winds, which yeah, it's a little bit yeah. Santa Ana winds don't really help yeah. anything. What's the Joan Didion quote? It's something like the the uh, Santa Anas have um, housewives uh, fingering the edges of blades and eyeing the necks of their husbands. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, that's a real thing. Um, I, yeah. You know, slouching towards Bethlehem. Oh um, uh, yeah. Um, uh, but the, that's a wind that, you know, is a, is a special to this area because it's a wind that blows from the desert down the passes. Right. I was going to say, it's like the reverse. It's like everything. It's like the upside down of winds. Right. Um, that, I mean, I guess if you think about it that way, that's the one time of year where the rest of inland Southern California experiences the wind of the desert. Yeah, maybe people are just always a little more insane up in the desert. It's not just during that time of year. <laughs> yeah, no, we yeah we 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 feel it out here. It's definitely <laughs> we wish it wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, the in terms of like the Mistral, I just you know we've talked about this before, but um, there there are certain things that just aren't realities up in the desert, like certain disease pressures because you just never reach a certain amount of humidity, uh, which is, is uh, necessary for things like powdery to begin, you know, you certainly reach temperatures that allow for that kind of growth, but you never get that kind of humidity. 
Right, and oftentimes the the daytime temperatures quickly get to over the sort of range that would be happy for mildews too. So it's you're actually sort of searing them as well as desiccating them. Right, right. Well, and we, I mean, Dusty just Dusty and I both just finished. A, um, I guess we're a little behind the curve on this, but we just finished a, the new California wine, the John Bonnet book, um, and you know he talks about visiting. Uh, I hope I'm not getting the book wrong. I read too many books at one time, but um, you know, he visits some farmers out in you know the the valley, the San Joaquin Valley, and they're growing these massive, massive vineyards of I don't know, like French Columbard. Yeah, French Columbard. You know, yeah, Thompson Seedless or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And they're just putting out like something insane. 20, I think. Yeah, 20 tons an acre. Just something crazy. And he's just yeah. like, oh, just put water in the soil. You know, just you know, yeah. put uh, fertilizer in the soil. Or not. You know, just uh, just keep watering them and they'll keep putting out. He doesn't care about quality. He doesn't care about anything but quantity and the look of the grapes. But that's not to say that the people that we get grapes from in the desert think the same thing. They're very, they're interested in quality and they really care about their vines, but it's just kind of, it defies a certain kind of logic to go into the middle of what otherwise looks like a wasteland to the uninitiated. Uh, and then come across 20 acres of beautiful 23 year old vines that are just, you know, as happy as can be. And those vines also are um, native, they're native yeast population. You wouldn't think, we even thought, like, are these going to even kick off spontaneously? But they really did just as fast as anything else. There's yeah. no oak trees around. There's just sagebrush and some yucca, yucca trees, yucca bushes. It goes cacti, back to... And it really, there's still a population. So the, the, the soil, there's good soil up there. There's yeast population. It's just as much as anything else. It's just a little bit harder to, to visualize it and harder to see everything. But it goes it's definitely there. Back to your point of, of uh, the perception that, that <clears throat> desert grapes are inferior. It's kind of in line with the perception of the desert in general. And that's people think of the desert as a dead place when it's, it's absolutely not a dead place. Well, it seems like... so. Is there any legitimacy to criticisms of, you know, getting the more like raisin flavors or uh, not having enough hang time to develop, uh, you know, complexity without baking it? Yeah. So there's um, Mark Matthews. He was a professor emeritus at um, UC Davis. He wrote a book called Terroir and Other Myths of Wine Growing. It really, I don't have you read that? I've seen I've seen that. I and I've seen a lot of articles written about it. But I are, yeah. and, and in Jordan Mackey and Raj Parr's second book, uh, the Somalia's Atlas of Taste, they referred to it. You know, they, they kind of responded to it because one of his major claims is, you know, terroir doesn't exist. You know, the idea of minerality is absurd because there aren't there's no mineral content in wine. So how could you actually taste minerals? You know, and he takes things very literally and scientifically. Um, mm -hmm. which, you know, for guys like Raj Parr and Jordan Mackey misses the point, you know, yeah. just because you can't explain it scientifically doesn't mean that you can't perceive of it, um, you know, sensationally. Um, but, um, I think that 
Uh, another point that, that um, Mark Matthews made in that book is that the concept of uh, phenolic ripeness is absurd. It's just something that the wine trade just kind of tosses around like any kind of terminology that comes in vogue. Like, oh, well, you know, you got to make sure that those seeds taste like almonds when you bite into them or else you're really not going to get grapes that are worth anything at all. You know, it's, it's just kind of this uh, folk wisdom that becomes shrouded in this kind of scientific sheep's clothing and becomes uh, assumed wisdom. And he makes a lot of claims that while scientific might not necessarily hold water for the wine community at large, but ultimately his claim is that with wine, just like with anything else, you should have a healthy level of skepticism. So when someone says, this is the way that wine is grown, these are the places that wine is grown, be skeptical. Like, mm -hmm. don't, don't just let them make those claims because it's not just a matter of making one experiment with a bunch of you know, uh, variables controlled for uh, without the proper context, that's not sufficient to prove something is true. Uh, you know, it, it's more experiential. It's more phenomenological than that. Wine is something to be experienced. Um, and you have to experience it over and over again. And to say that this is the only way that wine can be made and this is the only place it can be made is, is too simplistic. Yeah, and a little snobby and a little, uh, well, it it benefits the people, the people saying it are the people who live in those places. So it benefits. Yeah, right. them. <laughs> um, what what have you discovered this year? I mean, are you guys doing measurements when you're picking or crushing? Like, do you know what your acids and sugars are to see? I mean, let, let's start by saying you guys probably picked about a month earlier than the rest of California. Is that correct? Uh, if not earlier. Yeah, we had a very early pick this year. Wow. <clears throat> Our fruit, you know, the desert fruit came and... quickly. And the vineyard that we uh, harvested from here in Redlands um, actually was before, was first. We, we had a huge, yeah, it, we picked that one a, a, at least two weeks before we originally thought. Yeah. But we had a big heat. We had an amazing uh, summer in Southern California. And then out of nowhere, we had projected 113 degree, like a whole week of it's hot. plus 110 yeah, in August. Yeah. So we decided to pick that fruit and we're getting a lot of bird damage on that vineyard. So we decided to pick mm -hmm. right before that crazy week. And we were a little bit, we, we were look, we were tasting it. Everything seemed fine. We were happy with it. Um, we were just doing some bricks readings and those were coming in maybe a little bit lower than we originally thought with 24. Some of them were 24. So we, we did a measurement to the vineyard down here. That's like actually in town here, which is a very small parcel planted on probably a 30% grade uh, in the foothills uh, owned by this really sweet guy who, you know, built the trellises himself, planted himself. He just learned it soup to nuts. Um, and when we measured at 22 and it was up from 21 the day before, we were like, this is accumulating sugar really fast. <laughs> and we were looking at like what the birds were doing. And it's, it's a primitivo, uh, you know, it, oh, nice. it, it's infinite. We want to call it. Something, yeah. But you know, we got to <laughs> do that. Um, and we were like, okay, we better pick this. If it's a little early, then that's, 
better than losing more of the fruit. And we were excited about it a little bit early. We yeah. weren't, yeah, we weren't against that at all. So, but just to give you an idea of what the fruit looked like this year, we picked mid-August, mm-hmm. and our uh, our bricks were twenty-three and a half. The Zinfandel, the Zinfandel, the yeah, yeah, the Primitivo. The um, the pH was three point one. Wow. And the TA was oh shit, three point one. Three point one. Yeah, it was insane. It was so that's plenty of acid. I mean that that's yeah. counterintuitive. Like you, yeah, you know, in hot. I mean, my my. I'm sure the stereotype is in our climate we lose acid really quickly we go yeah. accumulate sugar and just drop acid but that um that's a pretty nice balance <laughs> i mean you could even let that hang a little it's a great, it's a great wine we could have let it hang but like just yeah when you have that week coming yeah i i made a couple decisions based on that week too yeah was crazy. we were doing so good it was such an amazing summer and but then... we don't regret it it's it's a great wine it's it's uh we're yeah that one tastes i think it's it'll be the best tasting wine maybe not the most interesting but that one is qualities there it, that's an incredible vineyard yeah nice we're hoping we'll have access to it next year but the thing is like it's so small that we'll never get more than a barrel out of it um, uh, but you know it does bode well for the rest of vineyards around here and in Yucaipa, maybe even at higher elevations too, because there's some parts of Yucaipa that are, you know, 3,000, 3,200 feet. So they have diurnal shifts of like 40 degrees in the summer sometimes. You know, I noticed something. So here, as we know, we're always learning, but so we, and, and I think you and I reacted, uh, I mean, you plural and me reacted, uh, Similarly, probably with a little bit of trepidation about that huge heat spike that we were going to get and did some early picks um, because of that, I discovered, and I don't know if you guys found this, but I went back and did later picks as well because I, I just had to, like things happened and I wanted more grapes. Um, picked from the same block, the sugars had gone up and the acid hadn't changed at all. Like, I mean, if they if it had gone up, it had gone up only slightly. And this is like, a week and a half, two weeks later, oh. even after that heat spike, it was like, it was almost like when it's that hot, the, the vines just took a break and they're like, nah, we're not doing anything. We're just shutting down. <laughs> yeah, they, nothing they, to do here. They, they, what you, they stop ripening, but I feel like 110, that's a scary, I feel like vines will catch on fire at 110. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy, when you see a forecast, when you see a five day forecast with that, yeah very but you do hear that things will stop ripening and you just kind of wait for it so right right just got spooked I, yeah it's interesting to think of what it would taste like if we hadn't and we, right. we like you we picked fruit after that and everything was fine they didn't catch on fire and <laughs> the skin didn't melt so i think yeah i think they can they can definitely weather stuff like that it's just it's just terrifying yeah and I think- oh my god yeah it's like varietal is important too. Like we were talking to the guys at Galliano and Felipe in the Cucamonga Valley. And one guy in particular, Felipe was like, yeah, there was one year where, you know, we lost all the fruit on all the vines. It literally just like essentially melted off the vine. But the Petit Syrah was the exception and the Zinfandel, you know? So like yeah. varietals that are just like, you know, They're made for it. Come at me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. 
So what did you guys make this year? That's you, a great question because we, a long we, uh, <laughs> we made more than we, we thought we would going into it. It was hard to right. say no. Yeah, so let's yeah. oh, believe me, man. Oh, the first pick was the Muscat, right? Yeah, so we, we also said during the season, like, we were going to champion certain programs because we had so many of them. We were just going to say, okay, there's three of us. What are we most excited about? And where is each of us going to, like, spend most of our time thinking about that program? So Dusty's was first. Yeah, so where we call home is, um, like, our at our uh, our AP they were having some problems with um, some flood damage from a neighboring tenant. So we actually had to pick a week later on the muscat than we wanted to. So of course we're all stressing out. I'm stressing out. I'm thinking it's just going to get nuked. And it got a little bit riper than we would have chose by like, you know, textbook, like what we wanted. It was a little bit different. So we picked the muscat and we split that. So we did a skin contact for seven days. Seven days, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, and then we did a direct press on that. So we had a juice muscat that we're calling and then a skin muscat. So those are two programs. Next we picked, was it the Zinfandel? Yeah, the Zinfandel was the next day. Zinfandel was the Redlands. This one, the one that came from this small vineyard. And we picked the whole vineyard. um, And we ended up with those pretty insane numbers. And then we had uh, intended to do a Spanish style, a, um, a Tempranillo Grenache blend. Uh, but when we got to the vineyard, they weren't anywhere close to ready. And so this was where we talked earlier about being able to walk down the aisles at the department store. Um, we kind of had to do a quick pivot and we ended up making a Viognier Petit Verdot. Um, Sorry, this Viennier. is what happens when you have seven programs in a year. Yeah. <laughs> Petit Verdot Viognier seventy thirty blend was so seventy Petit Verdot thirty Viognier, and uh, we we thought this is going to be an experiment, but it it turned out to be a fascinating, fascinating wine. It just floral, like candied violets, is what we uh, when it, when it was young, we tasted it. Uh, well, it's been in the barrel for maybe a couple of weeks and we tasted it. And when you put it in your mouth, you've got Petit Verdot in your face. Uh, and then all of a sudden it just did a cartwheel and turned into Viognier in your mouth. And it was just like this experience, like one sip was Petit Verdot for five seconds and then Viognier for the next five. Mm. Um, so we're just, we're excited to see how it plays out. Yeah. And I, yeah, that, I, I love that idea. Like, I mean, I'm a big Northern Rhone fan, and I think throwing in some Petit Verdot sounds kind of exciting. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, I, and and seventy thirty. Like, I'd like to say that it was some like very calculated number, but ultimately <laughs> it just came down to the pick. You know, we were yeah. out there. We had so many hands. We had access to so many rows, and you know, we knew that we wanted like the Petit Verdot suffered a lot of frost damage, or was it frost damage? Frost, frost and wind. Used, yeah. yeah. Anyway, they were not happy this year. They were not putting out a lot of fruit. Like you could walk three or four vines without a single cluster, but the next one maybe had five or 10. Um, But the clusters were, you know, very small berries, you know, tight clusters, so tight that they were hard to actually shear off the vine. Um, But the fruit, you know, you pop it in your mouth and it's just like, it was different than anything else at the vineyard that we had tasted. And we tasted every varietal of the 13. And what they told us basically was that we thought we were getting the, the second growth 
fruit, you know, the first growth had died and frozen off. And then, you know, you normally go down the vines when you're harvesting, you've got the green ones on there. We were harvesting the green ones that had ripened in the meantime. Uh, So it was kind of cool. But we we had run all the numbers on every varietal, just trying to figure out where they would be when we wanted to pick, because we knew we had that kind of flexibility. But my program was kind of the long game at the end of the season, because I wanted to make a... uh, what we're calling a rosé of alicante boucher, but um, is ultimately made as a vin gris uh, or you know a blanc de blanc, and uh, we essentially direct pressed it. We we did crush and distem it just to like make some of the juice more available, and then like ten minutes later put it in the press and pressed it very very gently for uh, you know about two hours. And then, of course, we came home with the must that produced another 40 gallons. So right. uh, out of, you know, a uh, full ton, that's, that'll tell you how much we actually wow. got out of it. But um, I wanted something that was, you know, you've made um, a, a barrel-aged rosé. Yeah. And we've had a lot of those before and really loved them. Like a rosé with some body like a fat rosé yeah um, that still had some acid that was still refreshing but also had that uh that kind of beauty and complexity that oxidation brings yeah. uh, and so uh you know and we also thought it was kind of cool because there's only like one or two alicante boucher rosés that we know of uh one of them is from australia and the other one is from Gary Kramer guitar sellers in Paso Robles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we bought it and we thought it was, you know, fun and you know, refreshing. But this one, like over time, it kind of came out a little darker than I wanted to to see it. I wanted it to be the kind of this very elegant kind of onion skin. Um, but it didn't. It came out a little pinker. But over time, as it's been oxidizing, it has gotten paler and paler and paler. And now it's this gorgeous like somewhere between pink and orange color that's just like, it's better than if we could have picked it off a color wheel. It's totally mm. accidental. And that one's so much fun for us to see. Cause it's obviously, you know, little to no skin contact. So it's all what, what the flesh color is over time. Yeah. And that's really cool to see. Yeah. And then later after we had started this, we bought a couple of bottles of uh, Abe Schooner's Rhododactylus from the Bechtold vineyard uh, in Lodi which is all Cinsault, but he made a Von Gris uh, out of that Cinsault. And it's really, really interesting. And we love it. And since then, we've bought many, many bottles. Um, but we were just like, okay, this is how the wine is going to turn out in, in any capacity. Like, it's definitely not Lodi. It's definitely not that Bechtold Vineyard that's 130 years old. Um, but if it is in that kind of realm, it's going to be a very lovely wine. Nice. So I guess that's two Muscats that Dusty overslaw, <laughs> the Zinfandel and the Petit Verdot Viognier that was kind of Taylor's baby, and then the Alicante Boucher that was mine, uh, and then we had so that's one, two, three, four, so had, five. Or the wait, other than the field blend, <clears throat> yeah. we had the field blend, which was our uh, Los Empleados. Yeah, that was an honor to the um, at the the vineyard in Lake Los Angeles. The um, the owner he had passed away that year and so this was a a tribute to him he used to call his vines his employees so our um 
this wine was a field blend and we named it uh, Los Empleados, the employees. And yeah, that one helped me with all the varietals. There was oh boy. Muscat, Muscat, Zinfandel, Chardonnay, and Alicante Boucher was his favorite. So we had to have that one. Even though it was a bit early in the year, I think that came in at like 18. Perhaps, yeah, it's a little early. But that probably, nice. we, we also threw in some Chardonnay that was way overripe. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had Syrah. Mm-hmm. In there, Petit Verdot, Petit Verdot, and Viognier, and Viognier. So it was like three and three, three white, three red, and right now it's showing this beautiful, like straight up purple color. Um, nice. And the pH is sky high on that wine, just absolutely <laughs> astronomical. Um, like four something or what? It's I think it's it's four one. It's four one. <laughs> yeah. Hey, come on, that's fine. Yeah, it's fine. We've been watching it very, very closely. And, you know, yeah, I was going to say, just drink it fast. You Garrett know? mentioned earlier the, the, the uh, juicy juice wine in Italy. Yeah, it's a drinker. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't sit on it too long. Don't think it's about a drink. it. Too. We've played with the idea of, of putting it in liter bottles with crown caps. Just to, I was going to uh, say, yeah, you know, large yeah. format only. Right. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's good uh, though. So who cares? Wine's supposed to be drunk. It's supposed to be good, and that wine's it's good. So yeah, who cares? I, I'm yeah. I'm really experimenting with pH. I, I mean, it's it's been an interesting thing now that I'm you know I, as a home winemaker for years. I just was sort of guessing at pHs and really didn't know it all. I mean, I wasn't even guessing. It was not even you know I just didn't want to spend the money on it on a good pH meter. I tried a couple times, but there you know if you get a cheap one, it's pointless basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I found, I mean, I've, I'm surprised how high the pH is when it's still, I I mean, and, and it still feels, I mean, so many other factors affect that, that sensation of acidity, I guess is what I've learned. Yes. Um, you know, you can't do it with white or rosé. Like once you get over a certain point, those are. I mean, and that's a fine line. Like you can get over like three, three, and it tastes flabby. Um, yeah. But with red, you know, you can be up there, you know, and it's like the tannins come into play and everything else that's going on, and and it can still feel really fresh and and not at all, you know, flabby. You know, it can taste just lovely. Yeah, and um, I this might be a bridge too far, but we were been talking about um, Jamie Good wrote a really cool book flawless um and it's a popular press book i think maybe it's university of california but whatever the case um you know he talks about all the different flaws in wine um and or like what we would call a flaw and uh, sorry for all the noise we just got a chilled bottle flip top bottle of the it's beyond it's, cold, it's beyond it's chilled frozen, what comes after chill yeah, frozen alicante boucher <laughs> sparkling alicante yeah. No, it's, good. It, it's okay though is it too cold uh the, it's the smell is a little off <laughs> i can't even smell it yeah. <laughs> anyway so we wrote this book flawless and like there's a, obviously a whole chapter about um volatile acidity uh you know mm. acetic acid um and you know we've been thinking a lot about that because Acetic acid in its in its own right, like some people go, oh no, if I can sense any kind of volatile acidity in this wine, it's flawed. It's not worth drinking. It's shocked, you know, because we don't drink vinegar. We put vinegar on salads. Um, 
But there's some people that are like, yeah, you know, it, and the, the, the word that everyone uses is like, it makes a wine lifted, you know, it lifts the wine. <laughs> we get used to only a certain kind of acidity, you know, providing structure to a wine, but yeah. uh, a volatile acidity could kind of serve the same purpose in some yeah. way. So it requires people to definitely change their definition of what, acid quote-unquote acid in wine is and what purpose it serves but i mean if we're thinking about the changing nature of wine especially thinking about the influence that natural wine has had on you know wine at large va could play that role especially with high ph wines where va is much more likely to occur yeah i mean i've definitely seen some VA that has been in some very expensive wines intentionally. Um, so it's, yeah, I've definitely, yeah. I mean, it's a stylistic thing at certain points. Um, there was one final program. Oh yeah. The, the, the one we are all, I would say most excited about. Yeah. Who wants to talk about that? So you um, you interviewed uh, Abe Schooner, correct? No, oh, yes, I know what you're talking uh, about. Yeah. yeah. So he um, he oversees some amazing vineyards, and he last year got access to a very cool vineyard that was planted somewhere. Let's call it 1910, 1920, pre-prohibition mm-hmm. vineyard down uh, down in Temecula on a um, Indian reservation. And he got access to it. We helped him train some of the vines. It was completely wild. No one had touched it. No one had made wine from it for, I don't know, since basically since prohibition and no one had irrigated it. And it was, it was, it was proper wild. And the first year it didn't really have barely any fruit. It's about two acres. And during the winter this last year, we helped him prune a bit he had a cool crew with him. We met some great people and this year tons of, uh, tons of fruit came, came off of it. It's mostly mission. They're calling it some, some Grenache probably. And, um, just this beautiful, weird fruit. And we were able to get our hands on a, a ton of it. He was nice and nice enough to let us come in and uh, pick our own fruit after he had gotten what he wanted and, making some really cool, let's call it mission fruit. Yeah, really thick skins, lots of tannins. Uh, so interesting because of their bush vines. They're just wild. And the clusters are growing a lot of the time on the ground. Uh, you look at a bush and you don't see much, but you pick up a, a, a vine and you, all of a sudden here's these clusters growing on the ground, but there's no rot. They have a little bit of dirt on them, but you, you pick them up and shake them out and they're, they're healthy so it's just fascinating to to get to work a feral vineyard like that and then to 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 make the wine from it Um, and another cool thing about that is it it's re-rooted itself probably at least a dozen times and every time it roots itself it the what the dna changes and so if it started life as mission now it's it's its own thing and there's nothing like it. And that's really mm-hmm. special. So we can call it mission fruit, but at the same when time. You say, when you say rerooted, you mean when the canes come down and yeah, lay on the ground? Yeah, they out. hang on the ground for long enough, they will root. And then it creates something else. 
Really? I, I'm surprised by and that. Probably, Are you sure about that? It's probably, sure. we, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't believe it either, but we saw with our own eyes. Like Abe would walk over like, just hanging out. No, no, no. I, I believe that would happen because, I mean, I've started vines from just sticking canes into the dirt, you know. But I mean, I, 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 that it changes DNA and becomes something else. I know that happens from seed, but I would be shocked that it happens when it just, when a cane roots. So, like, there's both things happening. So, there is, there there's so many different things happening in these books <laughs> and have been happening yeah. over the and last This is a years. podcast in itself, that vineyard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you've kind of, you've talked to him about it before on, yeah. on this very podcast, but yeah. Um, yeah. Um, listen to the organic wine podcast, <laughs> wherever you get your podcast. Um, but he, um, you know, he would like lift up uh, some canes and go like, look at this. And we would look at it and be like, look, this, you know, vine is, you know, rooting again where it's touched the surface of the ground. Look at this. And we'd look and be like, this is a vine that looks as if it's grown from the seeds that have planted in the ground under the canopy that's grown over them. So there's so many different things going on. And you look from cluster to cluster and there's no resemblance. You know, some are big, shaggy, loose clusters. Some of them are these like really plump, like Clusters, they must weigh like 10 pounds. Massive, massive clusters. Half of them are uh, haven't uh, turned red. They're just, yeah. they're ripe, yeah, but they're they green, are green. And you're like, oh, I'm going to not pick this. And then you taste it. And then you're like, oh, this is absolutely a ripe bunch. On the uh, same cluster, you've got this dark red grape next to this green grape. And they're, they're just, they're both ripe. They're both ripe. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, amazing. Know, you think like, oh, this is all the same vine, but like really, if you take a closer look, there's so many things coming straight out of the soil that right. are not attached to one another, that are somehow related genetically, but you're not really sure how much. And, you know, like really diving into it and separating them all out and being like, well, this comes from that, but kind of take away from the magic of just like going through and you look at the bin after we got done or the bins after we got done picking and there's gray there's black, there's red, there's white. There's just, it's, it looks like one of our co-ferments, but it all came yeah. from the same vineyard. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, I was fortunate, I will admit to uh, get a barrel taste of that and f- unbelievable. Like it tasted <laughs> like candy. 2020, uh, 2020 barrel taste. Yeah. From us. Oh, from ours. I was thought you were, <laughs> I thought you got some of Abe's and get a grill you on how that tasted because I'm so curious. Yeah. No, yeah. no. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yours, uh, I mean, I, it's, I, I'm digging deep through many other tastings since then, but I, you know, it was memorable. I mean, it was, it stuck out as being, I mean, for something so gnarly and so wild, it just had like, these candy cherry candy watermelon almost flavors and and aromas like is that is it still doing that yeah and then there's like uh, i mean correct me if i'm wrong here but i have gotten from the beginning these kind of dried leaf and like green tea notes there's definitely some tea that really excites us there's a dust and when you pull the the clusters out there's like 
there's grass growing in the yeah. clusters. There's leaves in the clusters. They're dirty clusters. So you might literally right. be tasting dried leaves and not right. dry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we feel like we can taste that. Who said there's no terroir? We can truly taste that vineyard. And I don't know if it's just us or if no one else will taste. We can taste dust, dirt in it. I don't know if it's just us, but we. I think it's there. Yeah. Nice. I don't know if you do this, Adam, but we definitely just throw a handful of dirt into all of our ferments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I, I did have a, I had some Grenache that I was um, food treading and I was like, this is filthy. Like, I don't know what, if they, if like, I just had a sense that they spilled the bin at some point in the vineyard accidentally and had to scoop it all up and put it back, back in the bin. It was just covered. Like they had intention. Like, I don't know how it got that dirty. If, unless it was that, unless they accidentally spilled them, honestly, it might've been not the whole bin, but like a couple picking bins or something like that. But I was like, all right, well, let's see how this goes. I mean, it's nice, clean dirt. Yeah. We, the stuff that came out, our, our first, the wine that we did harvest to, bottle was our night our yeah Ukaipa valley zinfandel and when we took it out of there it, it just just the it was mud in the bottom of the fermenter. yeah it wasn't just leaves it was, it was straight up mud. mud yeah this weird clay this beautiful clay we would have made of it <laughs> <laughs> our emperor for our next yeah. Yeah. This, is the, <laughs> this is the other reason uh you let things age and settle <laughs> yeah get off the get off the dirt um well cool guys uh how can people find out more and get in touch with you if they if you so desire yeah we try to take our instagram seriously so herman york wine at herman york wine is our instagram and um herman york dot wine is the website and it's H E double R M A double N. Thank you. Yeah. It's, I, I, I make things yeah. complicated. So just Herman with lots of extra letters. <laughs> um, and you can get there at either hermanyork.wine or hermanyorkwine.com. So, you know, hermanwine.com slash Herman York. <laughs> that one doesn't work. Don't try that yeah, one. Don't try that one. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. I, I mean, we could continue talking for hours, but uh, it's been over an hour already, and I don't want to make this something that people won't listen to because I think you have some really important stuff to say about what's going on down here. So thank you so much. Yes, and thanks for being another Southern California winemaker. If you value this podcast and would like to support it, just go to centraliswine.com and buy a bottle or three of our wines. Centralis is my winery, and I started it to promote regenerative organic agriculture because I believe it is one of the most powerful solutions to some of the most important problems we're facing in human and environmental health today. The website again is centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S-Wine.com. Also, our Instagram is at Centralis Wine, and you can email me with questions, requests, and feedback at adam at centraliswine.com. Thanks for listening.